Now we're going to turn to 2 Timothy. I'm going to preach it morning and evening for the next weeks. And so we'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Many nations in the world, but one country, uh, this nation, Wales, is my nation. And so then it's special to me. There are many houses in Aberystwyth, but this house, the manse, is different from them all. It's my home. There are many girls in the world, but this girl is unique. She's my wife. There are many gods in this world, but this God is special. He is Jesus Christ. There are many gospels in the world. Much good news. Healthy babies are born. Recoveries from serious illness and peace after war. Happy marriages. Many such good news. But there is this gospel that is unique because it's the best news of all for all the world to hear. It's not limited to any ghetto connected with any people. It's a universal and international gospel. And Paul has been writing about it in the words before our text. He tells us it was planned before the beginning of time. And it was revealed in the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who destroyed death and he brought immortality and light. The message Paul refers to as the gospel, it's the last word you'll see in verse 10. It's the first time that the word gospel appears in this letter. And then he repeats it in the first words of verse 11. And of this gospel... I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. So this gospel is unique. It's different from every other, every other gospel. All the other gospels in the world, every other religion in the world, tells men and women what they are to do. That they are to have a month in which they fast. They're to pray five times a day. They're not to eat pork. They are to view cows as sacred. Uh, They're not to have blood transfusions. Laws, rules of every other religion telling men and women what to do. This gospel, it tells us what Jesus Christ has done for us. This gospel, the creator of the universe himself, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has, uh, has appointed favored men to be heralds and preachers and teachers of the message and to take it into the world. So, let's prick up our ears. God has brought you to hear this message today. And he wants you to understand it. And that's your duty. 
God in his providence has brought us to this place and you can never be without the providence of God. It comes to you from your God and it describes your condition and it tells you how you can be improved. There's room for improvement for me and every one of you. We can be changed for the better. And so I'm saying to you, Listen now to the gospel, what it does, and uh, respond to it. The first thing that this gospel says, according to this, this verse before us, the first thing is that every Christian is appointed to communicate this gospel. Every Christian. 54 years ago, I was being taught systematic theology by John Murray. And one day at the end of a class, I went to him and I asked him if the Bible teaches that it's the duty of every Christian to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He thanked me for the question and he said how he enjoyed getting questions like this, but he wanted time to think about it. And he'd give me his answer later on in the week. And so two days later, when I had another class with him, he was ready. And he gave me this piece of paper. And I've kept it ever since in his black ink fountain pen. He, he'd written a list of verses, 15 passages of scripture, and uh, 26 letters and I treasure it. I'm not going to read them all to you, no. But I'll I'll tell you a few of the verses that he gave that tell us we've got a responsibility to share this gospel with other people. The the first is uh, the situation in Acts 8 when persecution came on the church and they had to scatter, they had to run from their enemies. And we're told in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. All of them evangelized. That was the first verse that John Murray wrote down for me. And then he wrote another one from Acts 18 and verse 26. And we are told there of a husband and a wife. Two individual Christians. And uh, their names were Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla's name comes first. And they heard a preacher one day. And oh, they liked him very much. But they knew he didn't quite grasp the gospel. And they understood it better. And we're told when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the word of God more adequately. There we are. That's what they did with the word of God. And then in Paul's letters, then John Mary referred to 2 Corinthians 5.19, God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He's committed it to us. And finally then, uh, that well-known verse of Peter in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So I learned from my godly teacher that there are a number of exhortations and Examples in the Bible of mere Christians communicating their faith to others. And um, any growth that we've known and 
generally the conversions that we witness amongst the students have taken place because of this fact. Because one person has told another and has invited them to come and hear other people speaking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Paul in this verse gives us a, a three, tells us of a threefold commission that he had. Firstly, God appointed him as a herald, he says. You notice that? A herald went forth with the authority of his king, and he declared the king's message to all the people of the nation. It wasn't an activity like my activity now, because this is a religious gathering, and we've all gathered around the word of God for it. But this is the town crier with his bell, and he's going then into the market square, and he's ringing the bell, or he's got a trumpeter blowing the trumpet to draw attention to the people. And he wants them to gather and listen to the royal decree of what the king has to say to them. This is Pharaoh sending his heralds to run before the chariot of uh, Joseph and to shout, Bow the knee! Uh, this is John the Baptist, who is the herald who summons all the people to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. He's on his way. He's here. The king is here. The kingdom of God is here. He says, we're on a mission. Every Christian. We're to go into the world and we're to tell them. Someone rose from the dead. Somebody came back from the grave. Someone who would die to make atonement for our sins. God showed to us the reality of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God by raising him from the dead on the third day. And so God has given that commission and that means um, you should turn from your sins and you should go in faith and trust in to Jesus Christ. That's the message. We're looking for a response. This is no take it or leave it. One man's opinion is as good as another. This is... Uh, this is the Herald speaking. Richard Baxter, I think his, his best and most accessible book is uh, his Reform Pastor. And every time I read these words, I, I get a lump in my throat. He says, I marvel how I can preach slightly and coldly, how I can let men alone in their sins, and that I don't go to them and beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent, however they take it, and whatever pains or trouble it should cost me, I seldom come out of the pulpit, but my conscience smites me that I've not been more serious and fervent. It accuses me not so much for lack of human eloquence, not for speaking an unsuitable word, but it asks me, how could you speak of life and death with such a heart? Shouldn't you weep over such a people? And shouldn't your tears interrupt your words? Shouldn't you cry aloud and show them their sins and entreat them and beseech them to leave death and live? Leave death and live. Baxter's preaching. He preached as if a dying man to dying men. So uh, God's herald proclaims the great words of Christ. And then, in the light of what Jesus has done, we're to turn from our unbelief and we're to follow him. Secondly, God appointed Paul as an apostle. 
Now, this word apostle, it means simply a sent one, a messenger. And we have to think of it in two ways. We have to think of it, let me call it apostle with a capital A, which means one of the twelve. A man who was a companion of Jesus Christ in his ministry and then saw him the 40 days when he was alive from the dead in this world. An apostle is someone who has received authority, a vocation from Jesus Christ to speak in his name. An apostle is someone who, when he speaks, Jesus Christ is speaking through him. When he writes, Jesus Christ and the spirit of Jesus Christ is writing through him. And so Matthew and John and Paul and Peter here in this book, they, they bring the word of God to us. So the climactic aspect of worship after the first part, when we speak to God and sing to God and pray to God, then he speaks to us by his word. And so that's why we're studying then the second letter of Paul to Timothy. Because we want to hear, well, what, what does God have to say to us? Now, we've said to God, we're sorry for our sins, and we do thank him for all his goodness to us. And then God touches us, and enlightens us, and exhorts us. Now, the apostles, then, were the foundation of the church. You built an extension uh, to your home, and you, the men came, and they laid uh, a foundation. And when it was set... Do you know, they didn't come back and lay another foundation on top of that, did they? And when that was set, come again and bring the great tube in from the revolving cement truck outside and pour another foundation and another foundation. You only need one foundation. And God has given us a foundation, hasn't he? He's given us this, this book is the foundation for every church. Every congregation, it has a foundation. We don't need Rome's sacred traditions. We don't need the Koran. We don't need the Book of Mormon. Because God has given us, given us a, a foundation. We're like the, the wise man. You know the wise man? He built his house on a rock. And a great storm came. And his life survived. His house survived. Because it was built on a good foundation. and Oh, when you marry. Now you make sure you marry. So that there will be a foundation for that marriage. Of the word of God. And as you go through life and are by yourself. You make sure always you're standing on the foundation. Of what Jesus says to us in, in his word. So then uh, there's uh, the Apostles with a capital A, but there's also um, the word apostle is also used in the Bible. For example, it's used of Barnabas in uh, Acts. It's used two times there, and he is called an apostle. Well, he wasn't one of the twelve, but he was an official messenger that was sent by God to bring the word of God to people. And we, we are all in that sense. I know there's a special sense in which Keith Underhill. We pray for him. He's going back to Kenya now on Tuesday and he's uh, going to be teaching the theological course there for 10 days and visiting a few people. And He's our messenger to Kenya.
But you are, you are our messengers in the university. And you are our messengers in your little village outside Aberystwyth. You are our messengers in your street, in your class in school, on the school bus. You, you, you are our messengers. You sit with a girl every day and she says, what did you do? Did you go to church like you always did? And you say, yes, yes, I did. And oh, I enjoyed the. This is what I learned. You plant some seeds. You are our messenger there. Our apostle there. You know how our service ends? You know the last words that I speak every Sunday? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. And then you go. You go into not a friendly world that loves Jesus, but in a world that does know nothing about him. And, uh, but you go then to serve him and to speak for him and to nail the colors up. And uh, you go not with your own wits and physical strength and mind, but you go with the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to help you. So God appointed him as an apostle, as a herald, and then he appointed him as a teacher. It takes time, doesn't it, for a person to become a Christian? There's such muddled thinking about what a Christian is. There are so many objections to the gospel. Some of you are standing for years um, my printed sermons to friends of yours, you're sending them out to them. And they still haven't seen it. They've seen many good things, but they still haven't seen the heart of the matter yet. You're keeping praying and you're keeping sending them. So we have to keep teaching and phoning and letter writing because it takes time. I was reading one of my favorite uh, Missionary magazines this week, um, the vision of vision for Europe, and I was reading there about how a woman in Poland came to know the Lord, and her name was Mariola, and that name's touched me. She was raised as a Roman Catholic with prayers to Mary and litanies and living rosaries and paying for masses so that her dead ancestors then mightn't spend so long in purgatory. And increasingly, it all became irrelevant to her and repetitive, and it didn't touch her heart any longer. And so she went nowhere for years, and then family tragedies came, and illnesses, and serious surgery, and it made her think about the God she knew she didn't know. And she came home from hospital, and... uh, was open to talk to an evangelical Christian friend, Rose. And uh, she'd been in school with Rose 40 years earlier. And Rose brought her to a Bible study in another woman's house. And that woman was called Zosia. And they had a man who came in, and his name was Christoph, and Christoph taught them the Bible week after week. She said... He prepared Bible studies in such a way that helped me know God better. 
Although I was the only one in the small group who was a novice, these meetings helped me greatly in my understanding of biblical truth. So she was being taught. Well, now you students do that, don't you? You, you give out Luke's gospel and uh, you ask people to come to Bible studies and you study the Bible with them. She says, we start... Rose and I started our conversation about recent days and my illness. And that gave her the opportunity to share with me about God, his only son, the salvation which is a free gift of his grace to be received through faith in the Lord Jesus, Christ who came to this world to be our Redeemer and Savior, the spotless Lamb of God, whose blood cleanses the sins of repenting men and women. The only way our sins may be forgiven. Christ had died for my sins. This was the most precious truth. My sins could be forgiven. And I could have eternal life. From then on, I spoke with Rose about spiritual things, and she explained to me things I didn't understand in the Bible. As time passed, I was granted an assurance of God's love, his forgiveness, and his salvation. The Lord Jesus came into my life, and his power has changed it. The more I know him, the more I love him, and I want to please him and be obedient to him. I desire to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ with all my strength because he's the only way to justification, redemption, and reconciliation with God. There we are. That's what I read in Vision for Europe this week of Mariola and how she became a Christian. People taught her, didn't they? Her friend Rose, and then Zosia, another friend, and then a man named Christoph, leading a Bible study. And people came then in that way to know God for themselves. And that's how it's worked. Keith Underhill coming here, and Brian speaking to him, and Brian bringing him here. Many, many like that. Teachers of the word of God. Jesus says that we are to go and teach people all the things that he has taught us. So Paul tells uh, Timothy then that God had made him an apostle, a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. And there are implications of that for us. That's how Aberystwyth is to be touched by, by you. The second thing he says here, that every Christian is appointed to suffer for the gospel. Verse 12, that's why I am suffering as I am. I'm not ashamed. Our Christian friends in the Middle East, they're, they're suffering greatly, aren't they? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands have been displaced. Refugees from the cruelty of ISIS. And that's why... Uh, Many Christians suffer because of the hatred, then, of other religions. And uh, we know something about it, don't we? We're told. Even the BBC and the ITV tell us about it. And human rights groups and Christian agencies and secular news outlets, personal friends, they keep us informed. We know the facts. Well... Do you know the facts? Should you know them? You know, there are some Christian friends and they said, well, they don't want to know 
There's very little they can do practically to relieve the brethren. Why force yourself to read heartbreaking accounts of the pain of others when you can do nothing for them? We want to be able to sleep at night. And that's why we... Why should we fill our minds with shocking images of bestiality and cruelty and beheadings? They have a point. We must be careful. There are real dangers in reading accounts of persecution. Uh, Let me tell you what some of the dangers are. You can have an unhealthy appetite for horror. And the Bible is very, very cautious here. It doesn't describe in detail the crucifixion and what it was. It, It doesn't do that. In Manasseh's day, the streets of Jerusalem ran deep with the blood of innocent victims. doesn't tell us how they died. The writer of the Hebrews parts a veil and he says, they were stoned, sawn in two, killed with a sword. That's it. A hint of horror. Now, some people describe in detail then um, crucifixion. But the gospel writers are very restrained. There's nothing sensationalist or there's not a sadistic fascination in human suffering. And then there's another danger. It's possible to become hardened by reading of sufferings, isn't it? Uh, It becomes commonplace. There is such a thing as compassion fatigue. People read of another atrocity in Syria and they yawn and they make a cup of tea. Stalin is reported to have said, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. So God forbid that our brothers and sisters today who are living in tents, who've given up all their property and are starving, and that they should become a statistic to us. That's another danger then, that we become hardened. And then another danger is that accounts of suffering leave us overwhelmed and paralyzed and fearful. We may feel that the kingdom of God is... uh, is being crushed, and the war has been lost, and we become demoralized by the casualty figures. Europe doesn't know what to do with all the refugees. And we may forget the biblical perspective is that Christ is on the throne, and he's riding on a great white chariot. He's going forth, conquering, and to conquer. He is building his church And those that have died in him sit on thrones now and exercise kingly power with him. Our dear brothers and sisters, suffering now, tens, hundreds of thousands of them. But we're not suffering like that. In Aberystwyth, are we? But we do suffer. If we follow Jesus... And we're unashamed of him and we speak up for him. I like something John Stott said when he was giving his Bible reading on this passage in in Keswick. He says, 
Why do you have to suffer for the gospel? What is there about the gospel that men hate and oppose, and account of which those who preach it have to suffer? Surely the answer is this. God saves sinners in virtue of his own purpose and grace. Right? That's the, what the verses before tell us. Not in virtue of any goodness and merit that we have. It is the undeserved freeness of the gospel that offends men and women. A natural man, he, he doesn't want to admit he's a sinner. He doesn't want to admit the gravity of his sin and his guilt and his helplessness to save himself and the indispensable necessity that he receives grace and mercy and help from God. And only the sin-bearing work of Jesus on the cross can redeem him. Natural man hates it. This is the stumbling block of the cross. And there are many preachers who mute it. Many you hear on the radio who mute it. They preach man and his merits and his cultural achievements and his kindness to other men. They don't preach Jesus Christ and the necessity that he died on the cross. Why? Well, they want to escape the criticism and the persecution that the message of the cross of Christ brings to the world. No man can preach Jesus Christ faithfully and escape opposition, misunderstanding, objection, persecution. This is what John Stott says. When I was a student at Cambridge University, not me, John Stott, remember, God taught me the hatred of the human heart for the gospel in a very dramatic way. I was speaking to, in my rooms to a young man, a fellow student. And I was trying to explain to him the gospel of the free grace of God in Christ. I shall never forget how he shouted at the top of his voice three times, Horrible, horrible, horrible. God gave me, at that moment, a little insight into the human heart. The human heart hates the gospel because it is free. And it cannot be deserved. That is why we are called to suffer for it. So we can, we can avoid the offense of the gospel if we don't preach it. If we don't tell men and women we deserve eternal death because we're sinners. But Jesus Christ, because he loved us, died for us. If that isn't our message, people won't be offended. And they'll say, oh, we admire what you've done and your life. And Paul speaks about suffering. 
and what we are to do with suffering. We are to sympathize, aren't we? Um, we are to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. If they're in prison because of the gospel, we are to help them in every way. We are to take our stand with them. We are commanded to pray for them, aren't we? On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also helping us by your prayers. So we, we pray for the people in the Middle East, the people who are in prison, the women that are there, the awful things that are happening to Christians in the world today that we pray. Paul says, pray also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in, in bonds. So we, we pray, we sympathize, we pray. We prepare. We prepare. The Lord Jesus warns every one of his disciples that uh, if we live as he lived, then we're going to meet objection and opposition. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We follow a crucified Savior and we follow him to crucifixion. I'm sending you forth a sheep in the midst of wolves. Be as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, we hear of open-air preachers being arrested. And uh, we hear of... uh, a firm that makes cakes and bread being fined and threatened with closure because of a stand that they have taken. Of nurses being sacked for witnessing to patients and offering to pray with them. You say, these things can't happen here. They are happening here. Persecution is the norm for the followers of Christ. And we have every reason to expect in the 21st century it will come to us. And it will come to us sooner than we expect. Believers around the world are experiencing it. And why should Aberystwyth be exempt from this tide? A spirit of an age comes and it goes round the globe so quickly. God will prepare us for it. He certainly will. There was once a a Christian preacher who was uh, brought before the Inquisition and he was um, accused and condemned to be burned at the stake and he was very afraid. And the night before his burning, he held his finger over the candle to see if he could endure the pain. And within a few seconds, he was yelping in agony and pulling his finger out. And he thought, oh, oh, I will bring such shame on the gospel tomorrow. I'll I'll be denying my Savior in the flames. I'll be crying for them to have mercy on me. And I want to deny the faith. Well, uh, 
the day dawned and they took him to the stake and they chained him to the stake and he didn't flinch. And they set fire to the kindling and he committed himself in trust to God and he spoke from the flames to the people. God gave him grace and strength when he needed it and not before. And that's the promise. That God will be with us. We will need him one day in a way we don't need him now. And he'll be there for us. Sometimes I'm afraid when I think of dying. But God will give me grace when that time will come. And I'll die in peace. And as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it will be hand in hand with a Savior who will make himself known to me in a special way. And then there's the postscript. Every Christian is to be unashamed of the gospel. All right. So we are to uh, be commissioned to speak for the gospel. We are to suffer for the gospel. And we are to be unashamed of the gospel. Um, Paul has spoken of this. Isn't that interesting? Just a few verses. You notice in verse 8 that he then said to Timothy, don't be ashamed of this gospel of Jesus Christ and don't be ashamed of, of me and my chains. He's told them that. There must have been a wave of persecution that was coming into the land. And uh, Christians were intimidated and some were giving up. And when they saw how other Christians were dealt with, they were, they were too proper, too middle class. And they were ashamed and they were denying the faith. Don't be ashamed, he says, of believing Christian truths. Don't be ashamed of telling Jewish women that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Lord, and that they are to trust in him. And then their husbands will divorce them and throw them onto the streets. Don't be ashamed if uh, teenage boys and girls confess Jesus Christ as Savior and their parents throw them out and hold a funeral service and will never speak to them again. Don't be ashamed that the gospel does things like that. Don't be ashamed of speaking it. Because God will provide like he provided for that martyr. We do not have to live but we do have to obey God and please him and glorify him in everything we do. Don't be ashamed. Three things that he tells us this morning then about uh, speaking for him and suffering for him and with him and not being ashamed of him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these exhortations. We're so ill-equipped to hear them and we need them and thank you for seeing that we needed them and drawing our attention to them and we pray that as providence leads us this week then we will be ready to give a reason for our hope and that we will be brave when men mock us for what we believe and that we will take that hostility cheerfully and thank God for the honor of uh, having a little pain for Jesus' sake. And we pray that all shame will be removed from us. We ask in the Saviour's name. Amen.